Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hey friends, it's so good to be here, especially because it almost didn't happen. We had a massive snowstorm. My goodness, it is March and I am really ready for spring, but this big snowstorm hit us. We got between 18 to 20 inches of snow. I'm looking outside my window now. We have a lot of trees down. Luckily, we're safe, we're fine, but half my town doesn't have power. My parents don't have power. My brother Alex doesn't have power, but I have power and I'm grateful because I could not wait another moment to share this show with you. I am interviewing one of my all-time favorite authors. She is back, it's Janine Roth. I fell in love with her watching her on that couch next to Oprah talking about her book, Women, Food, and God, which had a huge impact on my life. Now she's just come out with a brand new book called This Messy, Magnificent Life. I love Janine because she's honest and real and down to earth. And the reality is, guys, as much as we create all of these plans and we have all of these ideas and all of these dreams, life still can get really messy. You can still get a giant snowstorm or something else just doesn't go as planned. And Janine really teaches us how to find the magnificence within that mess. And we have a really wonderful conversation, so I hope that you enjoy it. Real quick, the 10th annual Tapping World Summit This is the last day. It's been such a big success. I'm so happy with how it went. If you don't know what it is, once a year for 10 days, we do this online event where I interview the top experts in the world on tapping and how you can use the stress relief technique to improve your life. You can listen in for free, but if you want to own it, you can upgrade to own the tapping meditations and the interviews and the workbook. Although the event is coming to an end for the next week, you can still purchase it at a discounted rate. After this week, it goes into our Tapping Solution store and the price goes back up to full, so it, it doubles. So if you are interested, now is the moment. Check that out. Without any further ado, here's Janine. Welcome, Janine. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> Good. It's my pleasure, Jessica. I, love I know you. you're in New York City and you're so busy, so I really appreciate you being with us. I'm happy to be with you. So I want to start with, I was reading your book and someone wrote me a question on Instagram and I answered them, but I want to hear your answer. And the question was, they said, Jessica, when do I know when I'm done? When do I know when I've healed this part of me that I want to heal? And so I want to ask you about this kind of finish line concept, this idea that we just want to heal and get over it. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, my take on it is that as long as we're breathing and walking and not dead yet, then there's stuff going on all the time, you you know, and there are, there's challenging things because even if you don't get caught 
on your old stuff or your core belief or some patterns that you just, or I say everybody's got three themes they work with in their entire lives. Usually they have to do with, I'm not enough. I'm worthless. I'm never going to make it. I don't belong. I'm unlovable. Pick three. And we keep going around on those same three things. It's different as we work with ourselves because when it comes around again, it gets triggered and then we look and we show ourselves some kindness and then poof, it goes, it's gone. So what happens is that the things still come up for a while, but they come up for less and less and less time and, and they're gone. And that's what happens. But I'm not sure because it's such old stuff and it's wired into our nervous system that it's possible never to have anything that triggers us come up again. And I think it's unrealistic and yeah. also it's up for failure. I think it's important to share that because we put these expectations on ourselves. And then when we do all of this personal work and something comes up again and we go, Oh no, I failed. Like none of it was worth it without seeing the progress that we've made. You know, for me, for example, mine is that I'm not good enough has always been yeah. the one that comes up. And when it comes up now, I'm like, Oh, this is what happens when I'm scared. Yes. Like hundred percent of the time, if I'm ever thinking I'm not good enough, if I look deeper, I'm just I'm just scared of, yeah. of something and I need more comfort and less yeah. criticism, right? Yeah. Right. Or, you know, yes, and also it's good to see that and it's good to I call it the oh sweetheart practice. <laughs> you just turn to yourself and you say, Oh, sweetheart. Aw. I'm so sorry you're scared or I'm so sorry you're feeling if, if in some cases you don't know what's at the root of it, you can still say, Oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. You're feeling that you're not good enough. You know, let me hang out with you a little bit. And so really, because they are usually frozen or undigested parts of ourselves and that, and really all we ever want, all any of us ever want is to belong, to be attended to, to be loved, to be welcomed, to be cherished. And if we can do that with ourselves, then, I mean, it's 100%. I mean, 99%, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, a big theme of your book is feeling the feeling. So can you, can you tell me about what's it mean to feel a feeling and then what's the opposite of that? Right. So feeling a feeling uh, when people hear that right away, they get scared, and, you know, because I say turn towards just like just like we just talked about right now with um, I'm not good enough. So that is actually a thought. And then there's a feeling below that. And so if you realize that there's a feeling, you can ask yourself, well, where what do I feel? OK, well. I, I feel, I feel sort of what, whatever not good enough feels like Jessica. And I don't actually know what the exact feeling is that goes with the thought. I'm not good enough. Usually it's just located in the body somewhere and it's a sensation. It might be a color. It might be a pressure. It might be very simple things that are sensate and direct and sort of objective in that, you know, if I'm feeling sad, it could feel like, oh, I have a lump in my throat. Okay. I have a lump in my throat. What's so horrible about noticing the lump in my throat? 
nothing. What's scary about it is the story that we make up about it. So I really, really work with people on discriminating the feeling that they're allowing themselves to feel from the story they're telling themselves about feeling the feeling. And I would say 99.9% of the time, what they're all worked up about is this story. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I should have known this. Why did I even try again? How can I put myself in this position? I'm a failure. I'm, it, this. So it's that story. Discriminate the story from the situation. Right. And that just takes a little practice. That's not really hard. You just tune in and you realize, oh, right. I'm really telling myself a story about this. And when you when you actually sort of get hip to what you're doing, it's so relieving because then you see you're creating your own suffering with the story. Yeah. Yeah. You make a great point in the book to help us understand that we don't actually have to believe everything that we think. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's exactly it. That's just what I'm saying. That just because you think it doesn't mean it's true or just because you have an opinion of something doesn't mean it's true. That's your interpretation. That's what you're telling yourself. That's the mantra you're reciting to yourself. And when you realize that just because you're saying it, thinking it, it doesn't mean it's true. It's such a relief to separate your opinions and your thoughts from what's actually happening and see that there are overlays on it. Because everybody's got different opinions and different thoughts about it. You tell one person the same thing and or one thing, they'll say, isn't it great? And the next person will say, oh, my God, that sounds horrible. So like that. Right. So going back to kind of this um, finish line mentality, it's something that you you kind of you address here because this book is so much about living your messy, magnificent life, that there is no kind of finish line when when you just hit utopia. But we've been sold this idea. And I read it in your book, um, Women, Food and God. And I, it really resonated with me, this idea that at that time for me, it was if I lose weight, then my life will begin. It was like everything was on hold until this one thing could happen. And if you asked me, that's the one thing I wanted more than anything in the world. And your book helped me begin to understand that there's so many, there's so much more going on um, below that. And looking at our relationship with food is kind of this window to discover what's going on inside. Can you, for those who don't know this concept, can you share a little bit about the connection you make? And I know that's a big question because you've written many books about it, but... I think you know what I mean, like just just this idea. It's a great question because most of us live in the future. We Mm. schlep the past with us and then we project into the future. So almost all of us have, if only I had fill in the blank, or if only I were fill in the blank, then I would be really, really happy. This is the one thing that I'm missing. I mean, I felt that way forever about my weight. Um, I I actually believe that the, the source of my suffering had to do with the size of my thighs. And that if I could change the size of my thighs, because that's what I felt was wrong, everything else, all that would be left would be the sparkling, sane, happy parts. Because I'd no longer be suffering about my weight. It totally made sense. But of course, then when I stopped suffering about my weight, it went on, 
if only I had the perfect relationship, if only I was living in the place that I really wanted to live, if only, so it, you never get there. You never get there. Every time you get to where you think you're going to be forever happy, you raise the bar. It's sort of like what the financial advisors say constantly. I interviewed a lot of them after we lost our money um, to Bernie Madoff years ago. And they said to me that every time, 100% is what they said to me, 100% of the time, somebody will say to them, well, if only I had $200,000 or you know, $100,000 or $10 million, I could relax. I'd be happy. And then they said, inevitably, every single time, the person, if they reach that, when they reach it, suddenly the bar's raised. And so I had somebody in a workshop once say to me, I would die to be as thin as I was five years ago when I would have died to have been thinner. So, you, you know, if you, again, seeing is freeing. So seeing this pattern is actually freeing because then you realize, oh, it's actually not about my the size of my thighs. It's not about my success in the world. It's not about the perfect house. It's not about being in relationship. This is the pattern my mind loops around it. And once you see that, then you can stop believing the story. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't... Um, you know, that you, that you're at your natural weight, for instance, or that you don't want to meet somebody to share your life with. People think that if they disengage from the, if only I had pattern, then they would just sit around and, you know, like not do anything for the rest of them. I just sit around. Mm-hmm. And I honestly thought that if I didn't obsess about my weight, I'd gain 200 pounds in a week. Yes, like- exactly. That's the thing. We think causing ourselves suffering is going to actually help change ourselves. But, you know, I often say to people, if you shame and deprive and obsess and fear yourself, then you end up an ashamed, deprived, obsessed, afraid person. The means to the end is the end. You become... what you do on the way there. There is no arriving. You know, the process is the goal. But, you know, for so many people, that's a hard thing to really take in because we love the thought that someday we will be happy. It, It sort of like helps our misery in the moment or what we interpret as our misery, the stories we're telling ourselves. And so it gives us hope to pin on, except that it never gets there. We never get that's why I feel like your work fits so well with what I do with tapping of it help because tapping is a way that we allow ourselves to feel a feeling and to go through it. And, and I remember when I began to use your work and then use it with the knowledge I had with tapping, when I stopped obsessing, there's like this leap of faith because when you stop doing what you've always done, it's also terrifying because it's kind of like the saying, the devil, you know, is better than devil. You don't know. And so we have to, in those moments of that leap of faith of, well, what if I don't obsess? We have to give ourselves the opportunity to do that and see what happens. And it's pretty incredible. Yes, it's beautiful. And I I think what happens with people that I work with is that 
there, there's exactly what you said. There's that moment where we are utterly familiar with the ways we've done it. And so when I say to people, um, uh, or they notice this pattern and they have the reaction that you just had, but if I don't obsess about X, Y, and Z, my weight, meeting someone, if I don't create suffering for myself on a daily basis, then I will just sit around and gain 200 pounds and I'll never meet anybody and I'll never leave my house. Mm -hmm. And, and what happens though, is that somebody, and you know, I give a couple of tools. One, one tool is stay in your body. Stand in your own two shoes is what I say. Feel your feet on the floor. Bring yourself back to this body and ask yourself the question, am I okay now? And right now, yeah. Minutes from them, am I okay now? Am I okay now? Because that thought you just had, you said you had about if I don't stop, if I stop obsessing, I'll gain 200 pounds. That's a thought. That's the story you're telling yourself. That goes back to what I was saying about the story and the situation. But if you say to yourself, okay, in this moment, I'm not obsessing. Am I okay? Am I, and I'm, am I on my way to gaining 200 pounds? I mean, what's going on now? And I recommend people ask themselves that question many times a day. It takes what? Like a microsecond Am I okay now? Here I am. I'm asking myself this question right this very second, Jessica. Am I okay now? Am I here now? My feet are on the floor. My butt's in the chair. Here we are talking. Yeah, I'm okay. Any stories I'm telling myself about how I'm not okay or about the TV show that I just did this morning and what I forgot to say and, you know, any stories that I say, they're not here when I bring myself, zoom, back to this moment now. Right, right. Well, I want to read, Janine, um, a quote that one of my favorite quotes. First of all, look at this book. Look at all the markings I have. I love it. It does a girl good. (laughs) Yeah, those are all my aha moments. Um, You wrote here on page 170, you said, after so many years of so many practices and so many prayers, I have only one left. Let me remember to pay attention to the ordinary, not just the extraordinary. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, I've been somewhat death obsessed to say it in a very nice way, um, since I was quite young. And I write about that in this messy, magnificent life, um, because I was always afraid of getting to the end of my life and, and feeling like I didn't really show up. I didn't really live. I, I missed it because I was so focused on the future or ensconced in the past. And so I Googled and, you know, deathbed regrets, things like that. And everybody says the same thing. Everybody says the same thing. It's not about how much they worked. It's not about how much money they made. It's not about how much success they had at all. It's about whether they were there. And sometimes this doesn't happen till a person, till the last five minutes before somebody dies. What happens is that, oh my God, I forgot to show up. I forgot to realize how splendid 
it is here. The fact that I can breathe, that I was able to breathe for 75, 85 years, that I can walk, talk, the smell of my kid's hair, uh, the fact that trees exist, the ordinary moments of, you know, picking up a mug and drinking a glass of water or tea, the fact that I can do it, the fact that there are mugs at all. Um, we forget how abundant and gorgeous it is here in our quest for more, more, more. And so the ordinary moments of which there are so many more, I mean, are extraordinary in themselves. I can tell you about, you know, how fabulous it was to be on Oprah. That was a high, that was really a high moment. And then it was over. And then <laughs> I am back. And then you still have to empty the dishwasher. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I still have to take the dog out. I still have to feed the dog. I, you know, I mean, it's, it's just so many ordinary moments. And my thing was, can I be here for them? Because when I'm actually appreciating them, then there's an extraordinariness to them. And then it's not just waiting for the big moments. It's every moment is like that. In the book, you shared that you had a big shift around this concept when um, your house was un was in danger of, of being burnt down in the, in the California fires. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes. Right. Um, well, we, um, the fire was right over our hill and um, we weren't yet told to evacuate, but I didn't want to wait. Uh, as I say in the book, my husband wasn't around. He just never seems to be around for the biblical disasters <laughs> that happen in California, earthquakes, mudslides, <laughs> you know, somehow he's always on a trip, you know, he's either on a work gig, he's somewhere else. And so I decided to, you know, to, to just evacuate right away. So I wouldn't have to get caught in the end. Um, not being able to evacuate because we live on a two-lane road. And I started packing things up, taking the dog, the computer, the this, the that. Um, and I started going through my closet, which is how the book starts, uh, with me realizing that I already had enough and that in my, there wasn't really that much I wanted to take. I wanted to take photographs. I wanted to take my computer. I wanted to take the dog and really get the hell out of there, you know, before I got stuck. But there was a sense of sufficiency and me realizing that I don't take in the good enough, you know, that um, that if I did, if I could, and I have since then, this was a little while ago, um, just ask myself, what what can I find, not what have I lost, what's here, not what's gone, then there's a sense of sufficiency every day. And I think that was what you asked me, right? Just yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. So what would you say to someone who's listening to this and they're saying, all right, I get it, but I don't want to live a mediocre life. Does this mean that I'm just kind of giving up to mediocrity? Well, here's what I would say to that. Neither do I. And um, I don't think anybody does. So this book is actually about how to take the everyday challenges of your life, including those with food, because a third of the book is about that. Um, but, but also things like being sick, like being angry, being sleepless, uh, holding grudges, having body parts hurt, 
Uh, I talk about breaking my back in an accident a couple of years ago. Every day we have challenges. Instead of trying to get rid of them or get them out of the way, and this is almost the first question you asked me, how do you work with those, the messiness, the so-called messiness of your life, as a doorway or as doorways to get to the magnificence of your life. So this isn't about mediocrity. This is about not trying to get rid of what you've got so that you can get to this ideal life in your mind that never comes. Even all those rich and famous people you see in the news, they still have dirty hair, dirt under their fingernails. Well, actually, maybe not dirt under their fingernails. <laughs> But well, when you're the perfect example, I mean, you were on Oprah, like Oprah was obsessed with you and it was the big, you know, it, like for so many people, that's like, that's making it. And although that's great, like you said, it's a certain amount of time. Well, it is. And you can't go to sleep at night holding your book that Oprah loves, (laughs) you know, having that keep you company or waiting for the next big blast. So I, this book is about finding that dazzle, that aliveness, tuning into your life force in the middle of the so-called messiness of your life, not having to wait to get to the big moments and only finding it there because they it's sort of like, you know, waiting to go to the sixth grade prom. And, you know, you wait and you get a special dress. And at least for me, my hair got all done up and poofed out because I have very thin hair. And then I got a dress. I remember exactly what the dress looked like. And I remember who I was going with, you know, anticipating it for months. Now, some people don't have such a good experience with prom. So forgive me if I'm ta- if, if you're one of them. And then it was over. It was done. It was like, it was a dream. The whole thing was a dream. And I still had the whole rest of my sixth grade life to live. (laughs) And that was over. And that's how our lives are. If you keep thinking that, you know, your daily life is mediocre and you have to wait to the the big things to live not a mediocre life, then you will be living a mediocre life, not because your life itself is mediocre, but because your attention is not on your daily life. It's not on the padding to the bathroom, picking up a glass of water, um, the just the splendid part of what being alive is like. And, you know, just really the dazzle, the, the, the rapture that's available to every single person if they let themselves become aware of it. And I talk about a four-step process in the book about how to do that. Right. It seems, I think it's always been tricky. I, it seems a little more tricky as we're all just kind of the the moment ah. we have time, like the moment we're not engaging in something else, we like immediately look at our phones. And that's something I have to work on. Like I, I've been trying to be very careful because there's moments when I'm in a restaurant and my husband will go to the bathroom and I'll take out my phone. And I'm like, yeah. there, why can't I just be in the restaurant? Right. Yes. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to catch myself doing yeah, those things. I think that's great. And, you know, you didn't ask me about this, but one thing I do want to say is that one one thing that's really important for everybody is to separate or disengage from what I call the crazy ant in the attic. Mm -hmm. Every single one of us has a voice in the head. Mm 
And this is part of why we just feel so downtrodden and overwhelmed a lot is the voice in the head and what I call the crazy ant in the attic is blaring at us all day long. You should have done this. You shouldn't have done this. How come you did this? Why didn't you do this? What? And it talks to us in this tone of voice. What makes you think, little missy, that you can succeed, that you, why are you trying this again? How come you wore that ring today? What were you thinking? And so real change and happiness, really, joy depends on you being able to see that that crazy aunt can blare on all day long. It doesn't matter. But if she's in the attic or if it's a crazy uncle in the attic, whoever it is, the critic, the judge, Mm -hmm. and you're living two floors down, who cares? Let them blare. Doesn't matter. But most people are under the thumb of that voice. And as long as you're under the thumb of that voice, it's very hard to see what's objective. And also that voice is the biggest obstacle to any kind of change whatsoever. Right. And it's tricky because we hear that voice a lot of times when we experience more stillness, you know, when we're distracting ourselves, sometimes it helps us avoid that. And so when it comes to doing a practice like meditating or tapping or whatever it is, a lot of times we hesitate because we're scared. We're not going to be able to handle that voice because it comes so loud. What do you say to someone who's like, that's my challenge is I'm just scared to even give myself a moment to hear that voice. Well, the voice is going on in the background all day long, whether you're actually listening to it or not, you are being affected by it without even knowing you're being affected by it. When you feel small or collapsed, when you're suddenly, when you suddenly go from feeling fine to feeling like somebody cut you off at the knees and you don't understand what's going on and you try to soldier on the crazy ant is right there. So whether you name it or not, it's blaring at you and you're believing it. And so the biggest thing is not so much the scary things that that crazy ant is saying, because really that crazy ant will try anything, anything that can hook you. The biggest thing is to understand that you and she are not one. That Mm -hmm. She is different than you. And, you know, if there's a crazy shock jock, let's just say, you know, I'm staying in a hotel now. And if somebody is, uh, if there's a shock jock, five floors above me, just screaming at me, but I'm a couple of floors below, what difference does it make to me? I don't have to get engaged. So that's the biggest thing. I think the biggest work or awareness for people around this is to realize that they are not that crazy aunt and they do not need to believe what that crazy aunt is telling them. And, and so to get a foot in the door of separation and the way that people do that is first of all, by realizing they've got a crazy aunt, by hearing what the crazy aunt has to say, but writing it in the you tense. So you did this, you did that, you did this, to start the separation, to realize, oh my God, I've been under the effect of this for so long. Poor thing. And then to figure out, and I give a couple of options in this messy, magnificent life. Does humor work best for you? Does to disengage from this crazy aunt, do you say, hey, you think this is a lot that I just ate? You should have seen what I ate last night. You know, to sort of use humor, go out in the lawn, 
tell the crazy aunt to go get, you know, have some margaritas and leave me alone to say, you are not my friend. I mean, there are certain things. Some of us work with humor. Some of us work with firmness. Stop. It just depends. Right. That's fantastic. Um, Jane, I just really enjoyed uh, reading this book. What's your hope with this book? I know that's a big question, but as people read it, is there something that you hope people take from it? I mean, you give so much, but does something really stand out? Um, what I hope people do and what the book provides the pathway to do, and I set out to do it because I realized after healing my relationship with food, I was waking up still feeling worthless, not enough, like I didn't belong, still feeling those things. And I wanted to live every day with a different sense instead of this hard little nub in my heart that felt like a a, a sort of background of discontent and worthlessness. So I want people to know, first of all, that I've been through it. It's not difficult to work through these things. There is a process, which I outline in the book. And mostly I want them to feel like they're not alone, that they've got a friend in me to feel like I know just what they're going through, that if one person can work through it, anybody can. And right in the middle of their daily lives, not that they have to get a different life (laughs) or get rid of or change or fix anything in order to be happy? The answer is right here, right now. I've, here it is. You don't, you can stop searching. You've got it. Yeah. Fantastic. I have one final question. It's something that I ask everybody who comes on the show. You've been on the show before, so I think I've asked you this, but maybe we'll get a different answer. What is something, (laughs) maybe, yeah. What is something in your life that when it happened, you thought this is horrible and then it ended up becoming a big blessing? When we lost every cent of our money in 2008 um, uh, in the Bernie Madoff scandal because a friend of ours who had been invested with Madoff for 30 years saw that uh, our financial advisor before um, had embezzled half our money. And so this generous, fabulous friend said, oh, you poor things, come and invest with me. Um, And we started out very slowly, but then we ended up because Matt and I were not focused on how to invest and who to invest. And then we lost it all. And when I got the phone call saying we had lost everything, I was terrified. I was in shock. And I spent, I would say, the first couple of days feeling like we're never going to recover. I was in such grief and also shame because we had um, just put all of our money, what was left of it, into uh, this fund that this friend of ours offered, um, where the results, by the way, weren't so great, but at least they weren't terrible. Everybody had different results with good old Bernie Madoff. Um, Within a couple of days, because I had friends who said to me, nothing of value has been lost, And it was so shocking that they could say that to me, to which I answered, which I write about in the book. Um, uh, This is not the time to be spiritual, honey. You know, I need like, no, this is the time to be terrified. This is not the time to be spiritual. But the more I realized I would only get through the night if I started focusing 
on what I hadn't lost. If I started really bringing myself and really reigning in my mind, I mean, really reigning in my mind, vigilant, because it was so easy to go wandering off into terror and hysteria, really. Because by then, my husband and I, it was 30 years of life savings for both of us. We're both self-employed. Um, and within, I'd say, a week of doing that, of not allowing my mind to go wandering off, really, really not allowing, I was happier than I had been in a very long time. Because I realized that before that, I was living in a trance of low-level anxiety and discontent, what I was talking to you about at the very beginning, sort of, well, when I get here and when I get there and then everything will be okay. And um, I wasn't noticing what I did have. I was mostly focused on what I didn't have. And so it was a complete turn for me in which I realized that no situation ever, I mean, ever is unworkable, that it's possible to bring yourself back to goodness to kindness, to a ground of what, you know, the life force rather than into terror or even just low level anxiety and fear. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And um, your book really is, is amazing. I'm going to put a special link for everyone who's watching now to be able to get it. Um, any other thoughts, Janine, just on this book? I mean, look, I just, you can tell I'm obsessed with it. I loved it. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I do want to say is that I'll be offering in a uh, very soon a masterclass um, for people who do get the book. Um, and the masterclass is called Women, Weight, and Power, Releasing the Energy of Obsession. Because what I find is that so many of us and what I say to women all the time and to men, of course, but my audience is mostly women. I say, look, if you could release the energy that you have bound up in obsessing about your weight or obsessing about what you don't have, we could power a nuclear plant. <laughs> we could change the world. So this masterclass will be about that, about releasing that energy, how to do it. It's going to be about a different kind of power. And so I wanted to let people know about that. They um, would need to get a copy of the book. And then anyway, just follow the directions on my website, JanineRoth.com, and okay. you'll see how to do that. Perfect. And the link is right under here. And Janine, once again, thank you so much. And good luck with all your book touring and exciting, so much exciting stuff going on with you. So thanks, thanks for making the time. Right. You're a pleasure and a joy. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us.